Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson, here on the Hump Day edition of The Yard. Yep, going back to back. You know, I didn't go Monday. It's kind of a crazy day. You know how it is. It's very rare that I get a day like that that I don't feel like I'm in control. I'm a very regimented person in many respects. And so, so it's a little weird going back to back days. I don't know that I could do this every day, especially going 90 minutes. You know, I might be able to spit out, you know, 30, 45, maybe an hour, but I don't know if I could go every day doing 90 minutes. Just, I don't know. Just, I don't know if I could do it. It takes a lot of organization. It really does. You have to think about what you want to talk about, get some notes together. And there's always a top 10 list. And we're going to do a top 10 list today that about 50 people have asked for in the last two years. I'm finally going to break down and do it. My friend Scott in Baton Rouge, who I played soccer with, he's like, you know, dude, maybe it's time. I don't know that it's ever time, but I'm going to do the list nonetheless. And uh, I do have some favorite songs from this band. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, I got into them, you know, kind of when I was out there, um, let's say in the world experimenting a little bit with some substances and so I don't listen to them as much as a sober living person but anyway we'll get to that and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened around uh, the college baseball world here in the last 24 hours and we're going to look at some football recruiting about almost time to kind of transition into that I have written a couple of softball stories here as of late you know had the Brittany Thacker Q&A yesterday uh, Chloe Malaluhu, I, I know I'm probably pronouncing that incorrect, and I apologize. But Chloe's dad, George, was a former starting quarterback at the University of Arizona back in the Desert Swarm days of the early 90s. And George led Arizona to the biggest win in school history. They beat number one Washington that year. As a matter of fact, it was George scoring late to put that game away, 16-7. to What's interesting is George had a brother that played at UCLA and a sister, I believe, that played at Oregon State in volleyball that went into coaching for several years. And then, of course, there's Chloe and her sister. Maybe we should recruit the two sons. They're coming up the ranks too. But uh, that piece is now out and available. A bit of a Q&A format. I don't want to waste a whole lot. But uh, you can check it out. You'd be glad you did. A lot of people are excited about softball. Robbie did a good job. We got a piece up about uh, interviewing Tyler Bratton. And so we don't do a lot of softball content. Maybe we should do more, but we don't. But it's been fun to kind of show a little versatility on the site. You know, like many of you, I mean, it's like I was kind of heartbroken about baseball. I'll have a piece up about that tomorrow. That's my, that's my big goal for tomorrow, for Thursday. 
is to get that piece written. So then all of a sudden we get a little burst of uh, enthusiasm, you know, with the softball team breaking through and doing something historic. It's always, you always remember your first time, right? And there are a lot of Mississippi State fans that have just kind of kept softball at arm's length and say, ah, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, we're Mississippi State people, but yeah, you know, I don't know. You know, the university has committed a lot of resources and uh, thank Tommy News and his family for donating some money to help build News Park. It's an amazing venue. A lot of people, you know, we had the SEC tournament here a couple of years ago. About to build a clubhouse, write a big check for that. You know, so we're, we're kind of committing to that. The university is kind of doubling down behind softball. And uh, T. Bratt and Coach Ricketts and uh, Josh all doing a great job. And now all of a sudden you're beginning to kind of see, you know, the dividends of the investment we've made. And, and again, I go back to the fact that John Cohen very easily could have just blown this whole thing up, you know, when Van Studeman, uh, you know, quote, left the program. That decision uh, really, I think, changed things. And, and listen, when Van got here, she was fantastic. Everybody was so excited, but then the novelty kind of wore off a little bit. So, we, we, you know, we never could have had the big season. We could never get past the regional. Well, now we have. And uh, two full years into the Samantha Ricketts era, and, and you know, the 2020 year, we talked about that earlier this week, about how great a year that was, and that was kind of taken from us. But when you look at what we have, Look at where we're going. I think it's worthy of your attention. I've had a lot of fun talking softball the last couple of days. Now, now, I'll be honest with you, I'm a baseball guy all the way, but it's nice to be able to kind of um, maybe show a little versatility a little bit, you know, and kind of get out there and talk about some things that maybe we don't ordinarily talk about. Because here's the thing. On this show and on our website, we care about what you care about. And so all of a sudden it's like people are like, oh, this is so great. Okay, well, let's pump out some content here. Let's put some softball stories out there to give you guys, you know, some, some more insight into what's going on, into the program, what's happening, the personalities. So, you know, you got to, you know, you got to strike while the iron is hot. But, um, you know, rather than write a bunch of postmortem, you know, college baseball stories, we've been able to kind of focus on this, and it's been a little more positive. It doesn't in any way diminish our disappointment with our baseball season. But it has been very nice to see our fan base kind of line up behind Coach Ricketts and her staff and her team here in recent days. And uh, I understand it's going to be a capacity crowd, a lot of SRO stuff at News Park. Eager to see what's going to happen with all this stuff. Sure. All right, let's talk a little bit about Bulldog Burger Company. Listen, let let me tell you this. There are a lot of places to eat in Starkville proper. There are. Maybe not as many as you'd like, but I tell you this: no matter how many we add, no matter how many new businesses come to town, they're going to be hard pressed to match the service, the quality of experience, the food, the pricing, the atmosphere of Bulldog Burger Company. Part of a great family of restaurants that has served the Golden Triangle low these many years. They know how to feed folks for sure. So if you're looking for a great night out with friends or family, look no further than Bulldog Burger Company. Three great locations to serve you. University Drive here in Star Vegas, Gloucester Street there in Tupelo, and of course the, the newest one, the newest member of the family, Lake Harbor Drive there in central Mississippi, the Ridge and Flowood area. Be sure and go check them out today. You'll be glad you did. Have the spring rolls as your appetizer. They will make you better looking. It's a fact. Eat them. Go look in the mirror yourself. You'll see. Thanks, Steve. It's me, but it's not me. So beautify the world 
with spring rolls. You'll be glad you did. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. I read on a message board recently, well, you know, I'm kind of glad we're not in Hoover having to deal with all this rain. Let, let me just say for the record, I would more than gladly sit up there and cover baseball games at 2 in the morning. I would. I'd much rather deal with all of that than all of this. It's just a reality of life, man. It stinks, man. It really does. It hurts because we're supposed to be playing. Let's take a quick look at what happened yesterday in the SEC tournament. Of course, there were four games scheduled. They moved uh, the Kentucky game back a day. So it's going to be a busy day in Hoover, assuming they can get these games in. But uh, you know, they've had to make some pitching changes and things like that. But Alabama took down Georgia. So what does that mean for Georgia? Well, you know, I think Georgia was in a position to play themselves into a hosting opportunity. They did not. You know, we discussed that when we went down there and played them. I said, you know, are they a host? Maybe. I didn't think they'd be good enough to be a top eight national seed, but they end the year 35-21 and 21 overall, 15-15 and 15 in the league. And this is a veteran team. This is a team that has some pieces that missed the tournament last year. So, in the grand scheme, when you break down the regular season, I think we could say Georgia maybe did not live up to expectations. We knew they'd have good pitching. You know, Cannon's been up and down. And, and listen, injuries have kind of been a part of things around the conference this year. But uh, they didn't get there. They didn't get there. For whatever reason, they didn't. Now, not Scott Strickland's in no way in any trouble there at the University of Georgia, but they, they may take a step back last year. But I think to go 500 in league this year and to go 15 and 15 with the veterans they had maybe is not what you uh, would be satisfied with. Now, of course, they'll get in a regional somewhere, probably as a solid number two, and they're capable of winning that regional. And then if all of a sudden, if you advance to a super regional round, you begin to think, okay, it's been okay. It's been a good year. So I think that's still, the jury is maybe still out. But at the same time, too, I think you can look at it and honestly say this Georgia team probably did not meet expectations. Alabama, I said at the beginning of the year, I thought they would be better. They're about where they were. And they kind of got in last year on a bit of a, you know, the power of the SEC. You know, they had great RPI considering their record. But they're about kind of where they were. And again, they've been better, been more competitive at times. But again, I think you would say you probably had higher hopes. And I like this lineup offensively. I think they've got some real dudes in there. Uh, but looking at yesterday's game, you know, Alabama jumped all over Georgia. I mean, absolutely came out of the gate and they get a 5 nothing lead. You know, Wagner got the start there. It only lasted one and one a third inning. Four hits, five runs couple walks, no Ks, only faced 10 hitters, and uh, five of them touched home. That's a tough way to win a ball game right there. You had the rain delay, of course. Had to make some pitching changes. That worked out well for Alabama, even though they gave up a run there in the second. It was a 5-1 ball game, and then they come back and they bring in this Hess kid. And they're high on him, but he has not been – you know, a dude they've really counted on this year. And what does he do? He goes out there and absolutely picks Georgia apart. Four and a third innings pitch allows one hit. 
no runs, one walk, 10 strikeouts. And he had that slider working. It looks like it's kind of a two-pitch mix for him. You know, it's fastball and a slider. And then when everybody's kind of grown accustomed to watching that slider break off the plate, he'll spot the fastball up on the black. I thought he pitched really well yesterday. And really the difference in the ballgame. You know, really, really ate up those middle innings. And before you know it, you know, it, it seems like Georgia's running out of outs. So there's no score from either team from the third to the seventh. And you get to the eighth inning, Georgia then makes a bit of a game of it. You know, they get to Guffey and uh, put two, two hits and two runs against him. And uh, he has three Ks, no walks. Allows a home run there that allows Georgia to really kind of make this thing a possibility. Now, all of a sudden, you start thinking, okay, as bad as this game is gone, you know, we've got an opportunity here uh, to make it happen. And it's like, it's crazy how it all kind of came to be, too. It's a two-out rally. You know, the things we, we, we struggled with. McAllister strikes out looking after a lengthy at-bat, then Anderson grounds out the short on a full count. Again, another lengthy at-bat. Cole Tate, a veteran guy, gets the infield hit on a 2-2 count to extend the inning. And then Connor Tate, second pitch of his at-bat, hits a home run to center field. And, and listen, you know, you hit one out of Hoover, you're, you're really swinging. And so it gets to be a tight ball game. You're down to three outs, but you begin to think, okay, we get one more chance at this opportunity here to kind of advance our season. Alabama makes it a little interesting in the top half of the ninth. Weren't able to add the insurance run. Ray comes in, closes it out, gets a K swinging, K looking, and then Gonzalez flies out to right field, and then Georgia's time at Hoover is over. But a good ball game, and you know, I, I look at this Alabama thing, you know, now they're in double elimination play now. So they're assured two more games. Not exactly sure how the pitching matchups work out, but they need to win a game or two, probably two. So we'll see how that goes for those guys. But, um, you know, it took a long time to get the game played. And then we had a great game between Florida and South Carolina. You, you don't expect to see a ton of pitcher duel, pitching duels this early in the week. You know, but the thing about it is, is these teams playing in single elimination play generally need to win a game or two to kind of pad their resume. I think Florida is a team that is, uh, unlike Georgia, I think that they are uh, in because of the RPI without really in trouble. Georgia's in, but I think Florida might be trending in a better direction. Florida finishes, uh, excuse me, they're still playing. 36 and 20, 15 and 15 in the league. And yes, they did not reach expectations in a regular season, but this is a team capable of doing some big things in a tournament. South Carolina season is over. 27 and 28, losing record. 13 and 17 in the league. They're done. So South Carolina will not be an at-large bid. And so what happens? Is there a coaching change coming at South Carolina? I know, I know a lot of Gamecock fans are hoping that's the case. Team came out and played pretty well yesterday, though. It goes 10 innings. And, again, it's a pitcher's duel. Florida breaks through there in the fourth inning. They get a run. And, you know, Sanders was outstanding for South Carolina. Seven innings pitch, four hits, allows the one run. It's an unearned run on top of it. Three walks, 10 Ks. It's pretty remarkable showing. It's a guy out there pitching for his team, trying to make some things happen. Didn't quite work out. Sprott was a starter for Florida. He goes eight and a third, four hits, the one run. 
seven Ks in the walk. You know, that, and that's a guy, too, that's kind of been their Saturday starter. That, these are two weekend guys. You know, they're going. And so you get to the ninth inning in South Carolina. It's, again, you got to admire their moxie a little bit. South Carolina battles and, and ties this thing up. And, again, you open up the inning with a pop-up to second, and then Wimmer – and it seems like Wimmer is always in the middle of stuff with South Carolina. He singles back up the middle, and then Seidler singles to send runners to the corners. They pinch run for Seidler. Florida changes pitchers, and then Eister, who feels like he has been there for 20 years. It's, I mean, honestly, it is insane how long that guy's been there. He grounds out. It's a fielder's choice. They force a runner at second. The run scores to tie the ball game, and eventually Florida gets out of the inning. So – Florida with a chance to walk it off in the ninth. They don't do anything of note. It's a one, two, three inning. We get to the tenth. Vasquez reaches on a fielding error with two down in the innings. And all of a sudden, South Carolina has a lead runner on base. And then Stone grounds out the short to end the inning. And then the drama unfolds here in the tenth. Uh, Caglione grounds out. Evans then doubles down the line. They pinch hit for Armstrong, bring in Kaleo, and that's a guy, too, that I, I said recently on the show that if Florida can get him going, that really boosts their NCAA hope. That guy's really talented. He's had a tough year. But he singles back up the middle, Then there's a throwing error, so now you've got runners at second and third, and then Halter lines out to center, and the runner tags, and, man, it's a great throw to the plate. I thought on first glance they got him. Didn't hang on to the baseball. It's 10 innings, and it's a 2-1 win for Florida. So Sully and his boys still kind of never saying die, and I, I would not want them in my regional. I know they underachieved last year, and there was a lot of things going on kind of around uh, Kevin O'Sullivan off the field. But now all of a sudden you're back. Picked to win the SEC by some people. But now here you are late having a chance to go make some- You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Things happen. And the nightcap, I know many of you stayed up with me to watch this one. Ole Miss and Vanderbilt. I wouldn't consider it a play-in game because as I see it today, I think both of these teams are in. And people would say, but Steve, you know, Ole Miss, you know, that sweep at LSU is huge. I mean, it's like... Bianco did what Bianco does. Late in the year, it's like in month, the month of May, Bianco always seems to kind of get his team going. To their credit, they generally play their best baseball of the year toward the end of the season. That's good coaching. It is. And we didn't play well down the stretch. We didn't. And I think a lot of that is we had a team that was kind of beaten down by circumstance, just couldn't get up off the mat. Incredible ball game. And, you know, and Ricky Bradfield – Junior, and we found out last night, we did the research, he's not draft eligible this year, so he'll be back again next year. He is the premier center fielder in college baseball. Just call him the scarecrow because anything hit gap to gap is a cornfield because he is so incredibly fast and so skilled with the glove. Anything that stays in the ballpark, he's got a good chance to run it down. 
It's a can of corn, thus the scarecrow. He makes a big diving catch early in that ball game, really kind of set the tone for Vanderbilt defensively. And if you're a pitcher and you got a guy out there that can, that can tighten gaps the way that he can and make that acrobatic catch, that guy's a game changer, not to mention what he does as a base runner. But a nice tone-setting moment there. Vanderbilt gets up one nothing in the third. And what's interesting, too, they had so many opportunities in the first. You know, they, uh, they load the bases – in the first and get nothing out of it. And, and that's when you know, great teams find a way to get something. They got nothing. Top of uh, top of third, Ole Miss uh, gets Gonzalez on base. You know, it couldn't, just couldn't get around. A lot of ground balls from the Ole Miss order. And then Vanderbilt uh, scores a run here to make it one nothing, And probably should have been a bigger inning, but uh, – you know, it's Jones doubling down the right field line to extend the inning. Then Dominic Keegan singles back up the middle. Then no one, you know, reaches on a fielder's choice and they force Keegan at second. So you get a one nothing lead here. Probably, you know, base hit here, base hit there. That's a game, though. You, you feel like you get some things going. Ole Miss gets a leadoff single, puts themselves in a pretty good position, gets a runner in scoring position. Uh, Kevin Graham, I, I'm not the, the fan of Kevin Graham. Many other people are. And I really thought his limit, limitations as a defender cost Ole Miss later in this ballgame. I know he had the big diving catch. And, like, I know people wanted to make a big deal about that. I, you know, as a former baseball coach, I see it completely differently. I see number one, Kevin Graham making a great effort to secure now for his team on a ball that he should have never had to defend. That's McCants' ball all the way. So, I don't know that he didn't see it off the bat. He didn't hustle to, to the play. Enrique Bradfield makes that play. Jess Davis makes that play. And again, tip of the cap to Kevin Graham. But later in the ball game, he couldn't track a fly ball. Next thing you know, it's a double. Uh, but he gets on base here, goes to second. So now you've got a, the tying run in scoring position with no outs. And you get a K swing in, you get a ground out. And then Chatier strikes out swinging. Still just kind of moving along here. And it's a one nothing ball game. And you start thinking, okay, you know, just any moment now, Ole Miss is going to break through here. And they don't. Bottom of five, Vandy adds a little insurance here. They, they, they squeeze the run across here in the fifth. And it just kind of felt like, you know, Ole Miss was maybe one swing away in this ballgame. It never really felt like they were out of it. But who is it? It's in, in, in Ricky Bradfield singling to left on an 0-2 count. Hewitt then fouled out to third. And you'd like to be able to get the bun down. They don't. Well, they walk Stephen Jones. Then Keegan walks. Now bases are loaded. They bring in Mowitz for Delucia, and Delucia's been really good for Ole Miss down the stretch. I, I think, you know, maybe the stress of the, you know, the run here at the end may have gotten to him a little bit. But um, then Nolan grounds out, and uh, the runners advance. So we get a, a run here for Vanderbilt, and then Bulger strikes out looking. But, you know, again, a chance at a bigger inning, but you do get one. Now it's not just about one swing. You know, you're going to have to get a couple of base hits. You're going to have to have a couple of ABs, you know, to give you, yourself a chance here to tie the ball game. Uh, Ole Miss next to nothing here in the sixth. And then next thing you know, Mallett hits the leadoff hitter in the sixth. And then Cameron Young, who has really struggled this year. And I want to speak a little bit about that too. I listen to a lot of people talk college baseball. And uh, I, I respect everybody's opinion. And I know that a lot of people on the SEC network, they have to speak more glowingly about players because the network in and of itself is designed for the promotion of the league. Guys, Cameron Young was exposed last year down the stretch. That guy had a remarkable freshman year. But by the time we got to Omaha, 
he had been exposed. There's a hole in his swing. And Will Bednar of Mississippi State absolutely wore him down. And what's he hitting this year? 220? He comes through with a big hit here. And this is, again, it's a guy that's really talented. But baseball is a game of analytics. It's changed a lot. Every at-bat that you have, every opponent's going to get that data. They're going to know what pitch it was, what below it was, what spin rate it was, how you could hit it, what you took for a strike. And so the analytics are beating Cam Young down. They're absolutely beating him down. He is going to have to reinvent himself. He's going to have to get in there and get in the cage and begin to hit those pitches that he's uncomfortable with now. I thought he would have a better year this year. I knew in some respects that he had been exposed, but uh, when you consider the talent and the resources available at Vanderbilt, you'd like to think they'd be able to kind of get that done. If we talk about some of our guys that maybe didn't have the year we'd hoped. You know, Vanderbilt, look at what they'd had. You know, they're basically, you know, middle of the pack. The two teams that played for the national championship last year, both of them really regressed this year. And Vanderbilt didn't really have any injuries to blame it on. But Young comes through here with a double down the line. Now you get runners at, uh, in scoring position with nobody out. And you think, okay, this is our big inning to separate. And to give Ole Miss a lot of credit here, they didn't yield. Diaz strikes out swinging. And this is another guy, too, that analytics is beating him down. SEC pitching has absolutely destroyed him. Bradfield then hits a bullet back toward the middle, but Mowitz gets a glove on it. They force a runner at home that was going on contact. I said they force him. Uh, they run him back to the bag, and then Bradford goes around to second. And then Gonzalez makes an error. Future first-rounder, Jacob Gonzalez, no doubt about it, uh, makes an error and allows the run to score. And it's 3 nothing. And from there, you know, it seemed like Vanderbilt was just going to cruise. Give Ole Miss a little credit for fighting back there in the seventh and scored a run. And then everybody's like, oh, there's going to be extra innings. I just didn't think Ole Miss was having enough competitive at-bats to really make this thing um, – a real challenge here. In the seventh, Chatagnier walks. To be honest with you, I thought they had him struck out. They pinch hit Bed Van Cleve. Of course, he rolls out. He grounds out. And McCants flies out to center field. And then Bench comes up and uh, takes one the other way, allows the run to score. Then Gonzalez grounds out. That's your scoring. You know, from there, um, you know, Christian Little came in there and just did a nice job for Vanderbilt. And so, you know, you saw some weekend names on the mound for both teams because the game matters. I mean, you're trying to you, – you need to win this game. And in some respects, I think, you know, if you're Ole Miss, it's probably better to go 0-1 than to go 1-2. and So, I know Ole Miss people are like, oh, we needed to win this game. I think actually – I think your resume is probably enough. But I think taking two more losses is probably not what you wanted, if that makes sense. I'm not saying Ole Miss is definitely in, but I think they're in. I think they're they, – they need the chalk to hold. I don't think they'll – they'll be on the road like on the West Coast somewhere or something. Um, but they're done for now. Now we await kind of what's, uh, what's left. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of the SEC and the NCAA tournament later in the show. But, you know, looking at today, it looks like we're finally underway. Kentucky and Auburn – that's a first-round game for them. That's a single elimination game. So the loser of that game leaves. And then Alabama and Arkansas. And then Florida and A&M. Those are your games later today. 
Alabama and Arkansas. What does Arkansas have left to prove? I think Dave Van Horn is probably pretty fired up right now. They didn't win the West. We knew they would take a bit of a step back this year. We knew they would, but not dramatic. And I, th- I think they're probably on pace for what we expected. But Dave Van Horn and Arkansas is a very, very proud program. And so I'm sure they use the fact that, hey, A&M wins the West. That should have been ours to win, and we didn't. But I suspect this Arkansas team will be motivated. But what if Alabama beats them? That's interesting, right? That would be awfully interesting. Then, then Alabama's guaranteed to get at least two more games. And then all of a sudden you start thinking, you know, if, if you're all missed, do you get a little nervous here? If Alabama stops, continues to win, maybe so. And then, of course, Florida gets uh, A&M. I'm looking forward to seeing that game. And to me, that's the game of the day. Looking forward to that. And so we'll see what happens. And, uh, again, I, I hate the fact that we're not there. I absolutely hate it. It absolutely drives me crazy. I, I don't know what time Vanderbilt and Tennessee are going to play, but that game's got to be played at some point too. Because, I mean, it's like these games are getting later and later because of the rain delays. So we'll see what happens. Maybe they kick that one tomorrow too. But um, at some point, somebody's going to have to play two games in a day. That's how it looks anyway. So this is kind of where we are. But, um, again, Mississippi State, not there. College baseball season over for us. It doesn't mean that we don't care. Many of you think, ah, Steve, I don't really care anymore. And maybe you don't, and that's okay. Uh, I do believe that Chris Monitz and the staff are in the process of turning this thing around. I know they're mining the portal right now to make sure that they get some players who can come in and make this team a better team next year. Of course, you get, you know, you got some guys, too, that are they're signees that uh, may be going in the draft. I hear a lot of things about Bradley Lofton here as of late, too. He's going to turn down a lot of money. We'll see. We'll see how things go. Let's get into today's top ten list. Brought to you by my friend Blair Chandler at CloseWithBlair.com. That's C-L-O-S-E with Blair, B-L-A-I-R.com. Blair is a, uh, is a guy that's been in the mortgage industry for 21, going on 22 years. He knows what it takes to get loans closed. And he can tell you, listen, he's not going to sit here and waste your time or money. He can say, hey, listen, I don't have a workable loan here, but... Here is what we can do to maybe get you in a position to do something a little bit later. And many of you, of course, are maybe you're overextended living paycheck to paycheck and you're beginning to think, okay, what can I do to improve the quality of my life? Well, Blair can help you with that too. Consolidate some debt, kind of get it down to one low monthly payment. The insurance on that is tax deductible. The insurance on your credit cards is not. So deal with a mortgage professional. Top 1% close ratio in the country, two years running. How about that? A guy that knows the ropes, and know, a guy that knows how to get your loan closed. Works at Fairway Mortgage, recently voted number one in customer satisfaction when it comes to mortgage lending. Give Blair a text or call today at 601-500-2344. 601-500-2344. He is licensed to practice in multiple states. He can get you taken care of. And if you mention to him, you heard about him on the boneyard, he's going to pay for your appraisal, and that's a $500 value. How about that? Nice little incentive for our Boneyard listeners to kind of keep it in the fam. Closewithblair.com. Again, C-L-O-S-E with Blair.com. Don't forget to tell him you heard about him on the Boneyard. All right. So I have been reluctant to do this list for two years now. And uh, kind of here we are. I guess it's been over two years. It's hard to even imagine we've been doing the top ten list this long. And this is a classic band. I hate to call them a rock band. 
because they're a progressive band, but they're not like they, they don't have the edge that maybe some of the bands that I listen to do. Um, but we're doing Pink Floyd today. And some of you are cheering and some of you are saying, oh, really? Yeah, no. Pink Floyd is one of those bands that, uh, you know, it's everybody kind of, nobody's really, I guess you would say, non-committal about Pink Floyd. The people really like them or they really don't. It's funny how that is. Progressive rock kind of brings it out of people, too. You know, it's like, oh, I know this song, but I hate this, you know. But uh, Pink Floyd, a London-based band in the mid-60s, right in the, you know, in the heart of all the psychedelic stuff. And a lot of stuff was really happening in America. But uh, to give Pink Floyd a lot of credit, you know, the things they did on records was just kind of remarkable because they had all this background sounds and stuff and it's it's kind of many ways like I, I love the Operation Minecraft album uh, from Queensryche and in some respects a lot of the elements from that where you're telling a story you know there's this concept album and there's like this background stuff that kind of kind of in between the tracks that kind of brings you to the next scene it's it's very in, in many respects you know dramatic and so when you put these albums on, it wasn't just like a single serving album. You listened to everything in its entirety because you were afraid you might miss something, if that makes sense. And so, you know, Roger Waters, of course, was uh, you know bass guitarist and uh, one of the primary songwriters. Richard Wright was as well. Dave Gilmore was a guy that uh, joined the band a little bit later. Dave Gilmore, of course, kind of, uh, you know, led the reunion of late. You know, in, in my generation, I guess in many respects, you know, Roger Waters has kind of stayed away from all of that. And it, it's unfortunate. I mean, even in the in the reunions, uh, Roger Waters hasn't been a part of that. And uh, Pink Floyd recently released a song called Hey, Hey, Rise Up, a protest song about the Russian and U- Ukrainian war. So just when you thought you'd heard the last of Pink Floyd, there's a new single out there. Maybe go check it out. They uh, They had... I guess in 14, they had kind of a one-off type deal where they released some unreleased stuff from the Division Bell album. So we're talking 20 years later. You know, it's just like there's some stuff that was just kind of out there. And rather than just let it all kind of die, they decided to release it. And so that's out there if you're unfamiliar. So here are the top 10 Pink Floyd songs in my estimation. You may disagree, and that is perfectly okay. I can assure you many of you love them more than I do. And I won't mention, I had a friend that got me into Pink Floyd uh, back in the day when I was experimenting, shall we say, and uh, been to the Planetarium show and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's just a lot to all of that. You know, The Wall is, um, is a classic to people of that persuasion, let's just say that. It's just really weird, like seeing those hammers walk in, the shaving scene and all that stuff. Uh, uh. Anyway, if you've, not, if you've not watched The Wall, you should. All right, but here we go. Number 10, one of the last great songs from Pink Floyd is on the turning away. And I think it's kind of apropos. That's kind of how it ends. Like their last big single is on the turning away. Number nine, and this is a song that comes in parts. It's uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I know some of you would like that one a little more than I do. Maybe it'd be in your top five. It's not for me. Number eight is Time. It's, again, one of those kind of uh, weird songs, too. 
There's just a lot going on in the background of these songs. Number seven, is there anybody out there? That's one, that's a question we've all wondered at some time, right? You know, does anybody care? Is there anything going on? Does anybody feel like I do? To pardon the pun of uh, Peter Frampton. It's incredible, though. Number six, Learning to Fly, and that's off the Momentary Lapse of Reason album. I think that came out in 87, 88. And it, it basically allowed a lot of fans of my generation to kind of have their own connection to Pink Floyd. You know, we'd all heard a handful of songs on rock radio. But now all of a sudden we had a Pink Floyd album of our generation. And it allowed a lot of, you know, parents and kids to kind of reconnect over music, which is a cool thing. Number five is Money. You, and again, this is one of those songs, too, where there's all this stuff going on in the background. And there were times like that's all I would listen to. Like I didn't hear the lyrics. I would just kind of listen to the background noise. Uh, number four, Hey You. That's that's when it gets played an awful lot. You know, that's the thing, too, with that Wall album, too. It's like there's just, there's so much on that that um, it kind of all morphs together after a while. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you have all these medleys and that sort of stuff, and there's just so much that goes on with them. I mean, Dark Side of the Moon, I've had people in my lifetime tell me it's the greatest album of their life. And it's not even really about astronomy or, you know, connection with another dimension or anything. It's really more about, like, depression. It's really more about, you know, the dark side of the moon is kind of pushing through all your own stuff. And it's like they have that, that prism on the cover of the album. It's like you once you get through that, there's all this colorful stuff, is this unity and things like that. And, and you know, it's, it kind of goes to that whole concept is that everything that you want is on the other side of fear. Like, if you're willing to push through all that, you can find it. And you're not so alone. And, uh, you know, the, the art of that album is rather interesting. You know, it's like you, you come along in this little gray, single solitary line, and next thing you know, it explodes into a rainbow on the other side of the prism, which is rather interesting to me. And maybe you guys see it differently, but uh, that's my interpretation of that. Uh, it's uh, Comfortably Numb is your number three song. Some people have that as number one, and that's okay. That's okay. I don't, but I think it's one of those uh, songs, too, that it has uh, different connotations for different people. I think it's, again, I think a lot of the Pink Floyd stuff is really left up for interpretation. I think a lot of people kind of see it that way. And that's the thing, too. There are so many people out there. I recently watched a documentary with Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, and... um, and he was talking about lyrics from the song Hurt. And I said, well, we need to make sure that uh, we understand what's going on here. And Trent says, you know, I don't like to talk about lyrics because I've had artists in the past that have kind of ruined songs for me because they tell you what it really means or what it means to them, and it may not it may not coincide with your, your interpretation of the song. That's why I think sometimes it's best just to leave all that stuff alone. What's this really about? What do you think it's about? What does it tell you? That's the beauty in art. And I think that's kind of how Comfortably Numb is. To me, Comfortably Numb is about you know being intoxicated or about having some type of um, you know some substance of, of sorts that is allowing you to relax. I'm comfortably numb, which means that I'm happy and I'm free and I'm, I am uh, unmoved 
by the chaos around me. That's my interpretation of it. You may see it differently, but that's how I see it. Number two, it's Wish You Were Here. And I love that opening guitar part. I really do. It may be, again, completely different for you. I think it's fabulous, though. I think that I think I love like the the instrumentation that kind of leads into it, and then all of a sudden you hear the guitar and it's it's like it's so far away. It's an interesting effect, and the second guitar comes in and but wishing you were wish you were here is to me one of those songs that really defines this band. But number one for me, and I don't know how it could be anything number one. I don't know how to me this is the most one of the most obvious number ones in the history of the world. It's kind of like having Stairway to Heaven for Led Zeppelin. To me, this is the Pink Floyd song. It's uh, another brick in the wall. I mean, and to me, I, I just think to myself, other people are like, oh, you know, Steve, you need to get deeper in the catalog. Like, this is it. If you've seen the wall, if you've seen, if you've heard the wall, if, or even if you haven't, you need to listen to it. This is a song of defiance. It's a song of revolution. It is a song of individuality. If you look at the lyrics behind it, you know, it's like, and I remember being a kid, man, when you hear, you know, hey, teachers, leave those kids alone. You know, it's like, we don't need your education. We don't need all these things. Now, all that stuff is not true, but it was basically a song of rebellion. And it is phenomenal, and everybody knows it. It's one of those songs, like, whether you know much of the catalog, you know this song. To me, again, it is an obvious number one. And I think one of those things, too, you look at and you go back and watch some of that stuff from the wall. It'll get next to you a little bit, <laughs> for sure. It will get next to you for a little bit. Um, again, a lot of images and all that. You know, they ha- And then what Pink Floyd's known, too, is like it's not just the music. They were a great live band that had all this very elaborate show. So it was such an experience, you know, whether you were sober or not. It was unlike anything else. They're playing these very, very unique songs, have this crazy light show. They have all these puppets, and there's all this pageantry on the stage, and it is an event. It's not just you know, a handful of guys showing up plugging the guitar players, like right, guitar players, uh, plugging their guitars and their amps in, like right after a shift at the coffee house and saying, hey, what's up, guys? You know, it's not that. So if that's what you're looking for, you know, you can ride out to, uh, you know, Jim's honky tonk out there at the crossroads and you can listen to that. And, there, and sometimes that's what I prefer. But these guys here were very serious about everything they did, which led to kind of the rift between uh, Dave Gilmore and Rogers Walters and those guys. That's a big part of that. It's because they were so serious about their art and they didn't always have, uh, shall we say, unity when it came to their their artistic vision. And so Pink Floyd, even to this day, has a tremendous following. And so all due respect to everybody that I've never done this list before, this is your list. And I guarantee you there is no shortage of maybe 30, 30, 40 people that have asked for Pink Floyd. And so here you go. And again, I'm not a big Pink Floyd fan. I respect them immensely. But I've never been one of these people that gets real deep in the catalog and think, oh, man, this is like the greatest thing ever, at least not when I was sober. So I think it's important to kind of characterize when I was in the Pink Floyd, it was a very difficult point in my life. You may see it completely differently and you know, enjoy them. Again, I'm not a music snob. And how can 250 million records sold be wrong? 
right? I am perfectly okay with admitting that, you know what, maybe I was wrong about Pink Floyd. Um, and when I think about some of the bands, like I, I don't really like Pink Floyd. I don't have anything against them. I think in some respects they're overplayed, especially during the daytime. But uh, be that as it may, you know, there's some other bands out there I really don't like. And I don't, it's not just because of the fact that they've been force-fed down our throats, but it's just they're just not very talented. And when you're talking about Pink Floyd, these guys are exceptionally talented. Exceptionally talented. You know, one of the reasons that I don't like some bands, I don't like their fans. You know, some of their fans get on my nerves. It's like, oh, this is so great. I'm like, well, it's really not. It's really just kind of flash in the pan kind of average. Oh, you're crazy. Well, no, I'm really not crazy. And I'm giving you room to be you and you room to like what you like, but I'm not going to have somebody tell me that I'm crazy because I don't agree with your little jam band. You know, it's just not my thing. And that's okay. I can promise you there are a lot of obscure metal bands from the late 80s, early 90s that I absolutely love that would probably make your skin crawl. It doesn't mean we can't be friends. I don't think any less of you because you don't know who Bang Tango is or the Sea Hags right we can all love each other all right time to move on let's get into some more college baseball stuff um this next segment of the show i tell you before we do that let's award our prime shrimp player of the game to all of those people yesterday all of those first responders at this horrible school shooting and there are no less than horrible school shootings. There are a lot of people that put themselves in harm's way in an attempt to save lives yesterday, and some of them lost their lives. And so I don't want to be all depressive, but I think it's important that we acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of people out there that when we need them, will charge into harm's way, not knowing our names not knowing our circumstance. I'm talking about our first responders, talking about our police officers. I'm talking about our fire department, our EMT workers, people that when we make a call, when our lives are falling apart, that they don't get a chance to just say, no, I'm not going to do that one. They come running. And so today's primeshrimp.com players of the game and really players of life in many respects are those people that keep our community safe and do their best to do it. And there's a lot of people today that are uh, really down in their feelings thinking that perhaps they failed and we should have seen that. And I get it. I do. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this, but uh, a tribute to our first responders that every time that we hit the button and say, you know what, I need help. They say, you know what, help is on the way. Again, brought to you by PrimeShrimp.com. If you're looking for quality shrimp, look no further than PrimeShrimp.com. A New Orleans-based shrimp company bringing you delicious and easy-to-cook shrimp that gets delivered directly to your door. How about that? They've been pilling shrimp in New Orleans since the 1940s. Proud to debut new products all the time. There's the Simply Seasoned, of course. I love that French Quarter Alfredo. And maybe the Louisiana Shrimp Bowl is the way to go. I, you know, my palate's a little different than yours because I live so long in Louisiana. Like what you consider spicy... I consider it mild, and so I like it. I like it hot, and I can put some Tabasco on this stuff, and it's like all of a sudden I'm right back in Acadiana enjoying life. I enjoy life here, but it's nice to have some great shrimp. And it's less cleanup, 
no major prep. Basically, you can have restaurant-quality shrimp on your plate in 10 minutes. How cool is that? These cool little pouches show up. They can sit outside all day. They're so well-packaged and cooled. Uh, You'll be glad you got them. Again, it's primeshrimp.com. And use promo code BONEYARD to save a few bucks on your order. Again, that's primeshrimp.com, promo code BONEYARD. All right, let's move forward. A lot of people are talking about, you know, what's the SEC look like. And you know, I'm a college baseball fan, guys. And uh, I, even though sometimes I feel like a big baby, like if we're not playing, I'm thinking, ah, I don't know if I want to do this. And, you know, I don't know. I don't care. But uh, let's look at some projections here. And uh, the, I'm D1 Baseball, these are my guys. I, I love Teddy Cahill and Joe and those guys at Baseball America, but uh, I'm a little more partial to D1 Baseball. I do think Teddy does a good job of kind of getting these uh, mid-major stuff right. I think Teddy, I think, was the only one last year that agreed with me that State deserved a uh, top eight over Notre Dame. I think. I think he was. I think everybody else in the industry had us as a nine uh, headed to Stanford, which is not going to happen. The people that said that don't understand the rules of how the NCAA selection committee seeds a tournament. All right, this segment of the show brought to you by Campus Bookmark. You know your friends there, the lovely, talented Susie, Miss Pam Minyard, uh, Kathy Brown, arguably the best buyer in the Mississippi State merch business. Be sure and go check them out when you're in town. Very easy to find just right off campus there. You make that turn off of 182 by the state trooper section and just keep pressing on the campus. And then your friends are at Campus Bookmark there on the left. If you can't make it to town, let me encourage you to visit them on the World Wide Web, courtesy of Al Gore's Internet, at campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays, and that is BSR, which stands for Beautiful Steve Robertson. And that'll get you free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. Any order less than $50, absolutely incomplete. How about that? How about them apples? Saving money as well listening to the show. All right. So... All right, so here is how it looks right now, and we're just going to go with the SEC team. So as it stands today, I guess this is a couple days ago, before the tournament started, they have, of course, Tennessee's number one, number one seed in the tournament. They have them paired up with the Georgia Southern Regional, yes, projected Georgia Southern at 16. In that regional is Georgia as a two seed. Now, I don't know if that works because Georgia and Georgia Tech played Midseason, I don't know if you want to have that many teams. The, the, the NCAA tournament tries to avoid rematches when they can. Sometimes it's not practical. Sometimes it is. All right, so you could have Tennessee and Georgia in a super. Could Georgia go in there and win that super? They absolutely could. Excuse me. They couldn't win the super. They could win the regional. They could win that Georgia Southern regional and then be paired up with Tennessee in a super in Knoxville. All right, the next tier, we don't have anybody in the Blacksburg Regional, but they project Arkansas as a number two in Stillwater. Now, this could be a loaded regional. You want to watch the good college baseball? This could be a great weekend, if it holds. Oklahoma State is the lead seed. Arkansas is a two. Louisiana Tech is a three. And how about Lane Burroughs getting those guys back in the tournament? Uh, and then Davidson's a four. Arkansas and Louisiana Tech, you remember last year, Louisiana Tech should have taken two out of three from Arkansas there at their new, their new venue. Could be interesting. All right, so tier number three here, or row three, 
you have Ole Miss as a three out at Stanford. Now, I have some friends of mine when I suggested that Ole Miss would be a three seed. Oh, they don't deserve that. They should be a four seed. Four seeds are reserved for basically automatic qualifiers, you know, from these G5 schools. So, like, you know, kind of like Campbell was for us last year. Now, sometimes you get a good, really good team. It's got some veterans. It's got some pitching. But for a Power 5 team to be on the three line, it means they're one of the last teams in. And, again, I think Ole Miss is in, provided there's not a lot of upsets. But I think going out and seeing Stanford, that would be rough. And you got UC Santa Barbara as a two. You know, I could see Ole Miss going out there and losing game one and then uh, having a fight out of the loser's bracket. Don't think they've got the pitching to do so. I really like the Stanford team. Said at the beginning of the year, I thought they would win the Pac-12. Oregon State did. Or, excuse me, maybe Stanford did. I think about it in hindsight. But um, they still got the tournament to go. But Stanford and Oregon State, both very, very good. All right, so we get down to the, the – the, that, that's it on the three line there. There's no um, there's no other SEC teams involved in those brackets. Now – uh, Corvallis, that's where the Oregon State team's going to be. You're going to have that's going to be a kind of a wild projection there. Who ends up going out there? They're paired up with Oregon in a super regional. You know, we always complain about that too, about how the SEC gets screwed every year. We shouldn't be paired up with other SEC teams. I like it when they have some diversity. I would like to see this change. I, I, I think if if that's the case, then let's make Oregon the 12 seed or the 14 seed to avoid conference fellows playing in the super. All right, so we don't have anybody involved in any of those. Our friends at NC State currently projected to go out there to Eugene. Remember, Gonzaga almost hosted last year. And then Gonzaga's uh, listed as a two. That, that could be a fun regional. Okay, so here's another one that I disagree with. So they have Miami as a five seed, and they have Florida going in there as a two. You know, Florida and Miami played a, a series earlier this year. I don't think you'll see them there. But if they do... You know, Florida might be able to get them. I don't think Miami wants them down there either. Notre Dame, our friends at Notre Dame, Link Jarrett, great coach. They're listed as a projected 12 seed right now, uh, would be opposite Miami. And it's interesting, too, that the, the way this geographical break, they have Ball State, UCLA, and Rutgers going to Notre Dame. All right, Maryland, uh, probably a surprise pick by many as a top eight national seed. They have absolutely earned it. They're paired up with the Virginia-Charlottesville regional. Uh, we don't have any SEC teams listed there. And then you've got Louisville at a seven. You know, Louisville didn't make the tournament last year, and a lot of people were kind of like, oh, but they didn't earn it. So the current projections have Vanderbilt going to Louisville as a two seed, and then that regional is paired up against Auburn. So you could have Auburn and Vanderbilt. I don't think Vandy can beat Louisville in their ballpark. I just – I don't think so. I think it would be interesting – I just think Louisville is just playing at a higher level right now. And in that Auburn regional, for some reason, what is it about Auburn and uh, Florida State and Georgia Tech? It's like they always seem to kind of collide there. The Auburn regional projection has Auburn College of Charleston, Coastal Carolina, and Florida State. A lot of people thought Florida State was going to take a big jump this year. They haven't. It's been a weird year. The number eight seed is Texas A&M. They have Army, Texas, and UT San Antonio. Texas was my pick to be number one at the beginning of the year. Had some injuries. They've kind of fallen on the wayside. Do you want Texas in College Station? I do. Southern Miss projected as a nine seed. Would have LSU as a two and Clemson as a three and Belmont as a four. Wow. Don't laugh. 
Belmont could beat Southern Miss. They could. It's a good team. And then LSU and Clemson. I think that Hattiesburg Regional is probably a little bit too loaded. So I don't know that I agree with the, the, that 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 projection. But uh, I think if I if you've got to play this thing out uh, to see, I think LSU would probably win that regional at Southern Miss. And I know some people would be really uh, upset about that. that you know, like I think the Southern Miss people wouldn't want to see a Power Five team in their regional. Like, hey, why don't we get LSU and Clemson? Well, that's what you got to do to get to Omaha. And what do you think? You're getting Ole Miss? I mean, come on. Maybe they should. But, uh, yeah, again, this is all going to change a lot here in the next couple days. And we'll find out, uh, you know, on Monday. But uh, they're currently projecting nine SEC teams into the field. And as it stands today, Ole Miss is the ninth. Again, what happens if Alabama continues to win? Do you get nine and, and then Alabama gets in? Yeah, I don't know. Let's take a quick look over at uh, – so the RPI that I use is uh, Warren Nolan. I don't know what you guys use, but that's the one that I use. I have found that one to be the most accurate, and it appears to be more in line with what the NCAA utilizes. Um, and I like the fact that it's updated regularly. So kind of looking at this, how it all kind of plays out here. Um, you know, Tennessee, of course, the number one. And then Vanderbilt still hanging in there. At a number five RPI with the number one strength of schedule. That's interesting, right? I mean, Vanderbilt's 36 and 19. They're 21 and 3 in non conference. And then you look at you know the conference record, it just hadn't been what you know they had hoped. Auburn holding strong is a number eight. Eight in the RPI with a strength of schedule of eleven. If they win a game or two in this tournament, I think you could make an argument that Auburn could potentially be a top eight national seed. Everybody else is kind of right here around them, and nobody's really taught, well, you know, Auburn's a 10. I don't know if I would agree with that. I don't know. Uh, our friends at Louisville projected now as a 7. They're at 11 in the RPI with a strength of schedule of uh, 21. A little bit farther down, Georgia, strength of schedule of 3, RPI of 19. They're going to be just on the cusp of that regional cutoff line. I mean, you don't have these anomalies this year where, you know, where you have, uh, you know, Santa Clara or somebody with a ridiculous record, but, uh, you know, an RPI that's really high, but you look at it and say, ah, this can't work. Florida, 22 in the RPI and still some upward mobility. LSU, 23rd in the RPI. Those guys can continue to play too. Florida, 15 and 15 with a strength of schedule of 12, and then LSU, 17 and 13 in the league with a strength of schedule of 20. And some of that's because they play the Louisiana Directional Schools. A little better brand of baseball out there in Florida. The logjam of SEC teams continues at 24. Texas A&M, 24 in the RPI and 22 in the strength of schedule. And, you know, they canceled a non-conference game and kind of admitted they did it because of RPI. It's going to be interesting to see how that factors in. A&M probably, I think you could make a case that A&M should host, and you could make a case they shouldn't host. They won the SEC West with a 19-11 record. Uh, I would have them hosting. I would. But it's like when you begin to look at all the metrics here, when you got Florida and LSU ahead of them, is anybody stumping for LSU to host? I'm not. It's 17-13 and 13 in the league. Mm. You could make a case. But A&M behind them, but A&M beats them head-to-head. So I think you, you obviously give the, the tip of the cap between those two to A&M. 
Uh, getting down Arkansas, 32 in the RPI and 50 in strength of schedule. Those guys shouldn't host. Let's just be, let's just be honest about it. 18 and 12, finished second in the West. But I don't know with an RPI of 50, excuse me, a strength, a strength of schedule of 50 and RPI of 32. Ole Miss loses last night. Their RPI is down to 40. They're propped up a little bit by a strength of schedule of 15. But your RPI now is 40. And you would feel like with a within it with 14 SEC wins and an RPI sub-50 that Ole Miss should be in. And, again, you don't know what's going to happen behind them. You start looking at this thing with Alabama. Alabama is RPI of 43. 30 and 25 with a strength of schedule of 7. And so, and they beat Ole Miss head to head. And so, if we're going to use that same qualifier for A and M and and LSU, if I'm Alabama, I could make the same the same comment. Now, the the difference is is that Ole Miss has won you know a couple more games in the league, and so that'll be awfully interesting as it begins to break down. Because what what's really the difference between RPI forty three and forty? Not to mention. Ole Miss goes 0-1 in the tournament. Let's say Alabama wins a couple of games here. Well, I think they win another game or two. They're going to pass Ole Miss in the RPI. And then all of a sudden it gets awfully interesting if you're Mike Bianco at Ole Miss. Could Alabama be a bid stealer? They could be. Awfully interesting. And then uh, let's, uh, our, our friends at Kennesaw State, Josh Hatcher and those guys, uh, RPI 52, strength of schedule 29, 19-11 in the A-Sun. You know, Kentucky's way down there at 54 with a strength of schedule of 19. I don't think Nick and those guys make it unless they win the tournament or maybe get to Sunday. I don't know how much Sunday matters anymore. That's just my honest opinion. But uh, when you begin to break it down, you begin to kind of realize, too, you know, Ole Miss lost four spots in the RPI last night, and then they cannot do anything to improve their resume. There are some teams directly behind them that can. So does the SEC get eight? Does the SEC get nine? If they get nine, I think you've got a good case that Ole Miss deserves that ninth spot. But if Alabama continues to win, you could make that case too. So I don't think the Ole Miss fans can sleep comfortably saying, hey, we're in. I think they're in, but there's still so much baseball left to be played. I could see a scenario where they're not in, and there is no NIT in baseball. And how incredible would that be? Like if, if Ole Miss didn't make the tournament. You know, we didn't make it. That's, you know. It's awful for us, but we're not looking to fire a coach. But if you're Mike Bianco and you feel like, you know what, hey, Mississippi State wins a NAFL championship, I've got everybody convinced to come back. And you know that's a big motivator, right? You see State win it. Well, we've got a team capable of winning it too, so let's get everybody back. And then they do, and then you don't. And now here you are sweating out the NCAA selection committee. How cool is that, right? So that's something to think about as we kind of move forward, too. So that's kind of how I see this SEC thing playing out. I think we can all agree there's going to be plenty of SEC influence in the tournament. It's just not going to be us. And that stinks. I'll say it again. It absolutely stinks. All right, final segment of the show brought to you by Portico. You guys know Portico. Brooks Bryan, our friend, wore the M over S, still wears the M over S, just doesn't play anymore. He exhausted his eligibility. Brooks is part of a great group of developers that are bringing this wonderful residential development to Starkville Portico. Phase one is completely sold out in a couple of houses, and phase two are as well. We've got about eight that are available for purchase now. There's still some room, too, for some custom home design. So if you were inclined to do that, 
you want to pick out your lot, pick out your house plan, say, hey, hey, Brooks, we don't like this. Hey, Carrie, we do like this. Uh, you can get that done. And it's great, too. I mean, how many times have you said, I want to be closer to Starkville? Well, you could be in Starkville. How about that? 1.1 miles away from the Mississippi State campus. I said, well, you can go to all the baseball games, all the basketball games, go to all the events, go to all the softball games, whatever you want to do. And then all your friends can come and stay with you. Your children can all come stay with you. You can get the two-bedroom, two-bed. Maybe you're looking to downsize. It's like, you know, hey, the kids are out of the house. We just like to have a place with a guest room so people can kind of come and go. That's, that's the way to go. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what? Ball game weekends for us are basically a fiesta, and so we want to be able to have plenty of places we can take a siesta. So you can have that four-bedroom, four-bath home, and really anything in between. I like having extra bedrooms, too. I've got, I've got an office, and I've got a kind of place to keep storage. As these kids graduate out, it allows me to have more storage space. Uh, that's not to say at one point I won't want to downsize, but uh, nevertheless, I'd love for you to come be our neighbor. Uh, move to Starkville. It's very easy to find. You turn off of 82 on a 12. The very first uh, turn to the right there is Pat Station Road. That'll take you right to Portico. You'll see how close you are. You're on the quiet side of campus, too. Be sure and Check it out today. You'll be glad you did make Portico your next move. But let me give you Brooks's number. Phone number 601-416-8075. Again, 601-416-8075. And again, if you're looking to move here and your real estate agent hasn't mentioned Portico, maybe you should ask him why. Let them know you want to get information because Portico, that's a smart move. Okay, let's talk a little football recruiting. I have, in, in, in my recent days of sadness, I have done some research and, um, looked into you know, a lot of players within the state you know we've talked a little bit about kind of the, the group here what i am seeing is that the camp sessions are going to be very very important this year now they're always important for guys that are maybe like on the fringe you know what i mean like guys like from small towns um you know i, I think that is something you have to kind of consider you know last year there were still a lot of kids that didn't want to get out or they couldn't get out and, uh, you know, one of the guys that has kind of uh, hit the radar here as of late for me, kind of as a small-town hero, is Tyreek Snow from Newton. Now, he plays quarterback. Uh, not going to be a quarterback. I've had some people compare him to Jonathan Banks, that he's just kind of the best athlete on the team and kind of fills a need wherever you need it. State hadn't offered, you know, and, and he's just kind of getting going. But uh, he, again, is a guy that's an athlete playing quarterback and kind of figuring this thing out as we go. That's a name to remember kind of moving forward. Talked about him last night a little bit on Gene's page. But um, I say that guys like he and Javion Butler from Scott Central, uh, Kelly Jones from Clarksdale, there are a lot of really good-looking players that don't have a lot of early options yet in the state of Mississippi. So what we have to determine now, is this an academic issue? Do some of these guys – have a handful of smaller offers, but yet they have Power 5 tape. They just don't have that option yet. And I think a lot of people, too, I think I think in many respects, NIL has kind of slowed some people down. I think there are a lot of schools out there that are kind of reluctant to take early commitments because now all you're doing is kind of shining a light on these guys and all of a sudden, oh, we'll, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. It's a mess we're dealing with. It really is. And it's not within the spirit of the rule. It's not what we expected. I know some people are like, oh, this is what I thought was going to happen. Okay, bully for you. But this is not within the spirit of the rule. And so that's some things that will be changed. And unlike what Lane Kiffin said, this is not a sustainable model. It's it's not. And what I mean by that is, is because what's going to happen, here's what's going to happen. 
is there's going to be more malfeasance than ever before because people are going to feel emboldened. They're like, hey, all I've got to do is give this money to this collective and then they can do what they want to with it. I, I'm free and clear, right? There's no penalty on me. Like if I run a business, you know, in the past, if it was found out that, hey, you know, the Joe Blow car dealership gave this kid money, well, then all of a sudden the rival school's fans wouldn't shop when you eat. Well, now all of a sudden that barrier has been removed because there is this now third-party separation. Oh, so I can give money to this company, this collective, and I'm free and clear. It, nobody's ever done the wiser. No, I mean, hey, I'm, I'm making a contribution. I'm doing what I've always wanted to do, but now I no longer have any consequences for it. I'm just giving this money to these people because I love my school. What they do with it is not my concern. And so now I think instead of having less people, you've got more people. But here's the deal. Is how many times are we going to run through this thing where in the end the NIL is deciding factor late in, in, in a decision? Let's say for an example, let's say rival schools. Let's say like a state don't miss thing. Let's say there's a kid that's been committed to state all along. And maybe Ole Miss doesn't even want him. And then all of a sudden you have like, uh, you know, an Ole Miss friendly business that perhaps says, hey, I tell you what, if you go to Southern Miss or you go to this school or that go, uh, we'll give you some NIL money. You don't think that stuff's going to happen as petty as people are these days? They'd love to be able to flip your kid on signing day or help somebody else do it. And maybe there's a quid pro quo, you know. It's like, hey, we're going to take this kid from you, but we're going to make sure you get this kid. There's just too many things involved in all this that I think that um, they're going to be uncomfortable. Because like, like we're only looking at this from, oh, like the, the fat cats. You look at this thing, you know, with Alabama and A&M, and it's like, well, hey, you know, that's two schools with huge budgets. You know, how are we ever going to compete? Well, most of the kids that we're recruiting are not going to get that same level of national, excuse me, name, image, and likeness attention. But there are some people out there that would be unscrupulous. There always have been. I mean, you can make all the rules you want. The rules only apply to the rule abiding. It's what makes those people cheaters, right? So you make all the rules that you want, but you have to be able to enforce them. And that's one of the biggest problems I think we have, not just in athletics, but nationally, is there are reluctance to enforce the law. Um, but all that being said, you know, when I think about some of these, these guys in Mississippi, I think what you're going to see – this year for Mississippi State is you're going to see a lot of these camp guys, guys that are outstanding-looking players that maybe their offer sheet doesn't match their film. I think you look at the film, and there's sometimes I would watch kids in the past, and I would think to myself, this kid must not be able to qualify because he is an SEC-caliber kid. And then you find out, oh, well, there's this, there's that. Well, this year what I'm hearing is that guys are just kind of slowing the process down. Schools are kind of slowing the process down. They're not pushing for early commitments. And I think a lot of these players are thinking, hey, let me go prove myself and see if I can't get some NIL money. And listen, I have had recruits mention that as a – when you interview them or you get their information to build a profile page and you ask them, what are you looking for? Well, NIL money. Because there are these people that feel like, hey – you know, if I see this kid getting 200000 surely I can get ten. You know, that's, that's kind of the perception that's out there. And so there's just not a lot of kids that are offering their commitments early. And the flip side of that is, too, is that you know, Mississippi State and Ole Miss haven't really pushed for commitments early. 
just haven't. And, and, you, and you talk to kids and you say, have they talked to you anything about committing? No, no, no. They know I'm taking my time. And they feel like the kids themselves feel like they're in control. And in some respects, they are. Uh, but Mississippi State currently now sits with four commitments. Three of those are in-state kids. Of course, the most recent one, Seth Davis from Katy, Texas. That's the only non-Mississippian in the class. Now, if you look on the Ole Miss side of things, you know, they're really working the portal hard. And I, I have had, um, you know, some high school coaches tell me they have not seen Ole Miss with the same level of regularity that they used to. Ole Miss currently with two commitments. Uh, people are like, Steve, we only got four. Are you kidding me? Ole Miss got two. And I think everybody's okay with that. I don't think anybody's failing. I don't think anybody's falling behind here. I just think all of this has kind of caused everybody, let's just take a breath. Let's just take a breath. It's not one of these years in state when you've got, you know, 10 four-star kids. And so evaluation has got to be a big part of it. You know, Ole Miss, two commitments. One of them is an in-state guy. They've got Marcel Reed, a quarterback out of uh, Nashville. Uh, not sure he stays at quarterback. Not exactly sure his story at all. But Suntering Perkins is an outstanding player. It's a, a running back uh, out of Raleigh. Mississippi State still recruiting him as well. And, and uh, the highest rated player in the state. But, again, you look at it and it's like, well – between Mississippi State and Ole Miss, and here we are about to be June 1st, they got four kids from Mississippi committed combined. You remember years ago, there was all this race to get the early commitment. It was like, oh, you got to get them committed. You got to offer them first. You got to do this. You got to do that. And uh, that's just kind of been the situation, you know, where now I think everybody is kind of just realized, you know what, we don't have to be in a hurry. Now, you look at Southern Miss, they have five commitments, too. And uh, of their five, three of them are Mississippians. Luke Rogers, Will Rogers' younger brother is one of them. They already had their quarterback identified. You got Matthew Nixon from West Jones, a wide receiver. And that's a guy, too, that could ultimately end up somewhere else. But I think what we're seeing here, again, it's like people become so acutely aware of what's happening at their school, and they think, oh, we got to be getting killed. Well, you're not. You're not. You know, when I look at national rankings, I don't do that as often as I used to. You know, I used to be like every day. It's like, okay, well, where does state need to be today? We get this guy here. What should have happened to us? You know, so like I look at Notre Dame right now. They're the number one class in the country. They have 12 commitments, 12. You get down a little lower, Georgia, the defending NAFL champions have eight, eight, and they're ranked six in the country. There's just not a lot of teams, and there are some that are right at 10. There's just not a lot of teams at this point that have double-digit commitments. Florida State has six. Texas has five. Michigan has six. Oregon has five. A&M. And all their craziness has five. Alabama has four. And so I shared that to kind of give Clemson four, ranked 31st in the country. 31st in the country. I just share that because I think it's important. A lot of times we think it, it's only happening to us. But this is a kind of a national phenomenon now. And just so you, in case you're curious, Mississippi State, 39th in the country. Uh, right ahead of us is number 38, Oklahoma. And number 37, Nebraska. 36, Miami. 35, Florida. And all of those schools have five commitments or less. And so I just share that with you because I, I think there, there, there seems to be a sense of panic in some respects with some of our fans. Man, we got to get going to recruiting. Well, you know, I, I think 
we're not getting left behind, so I don't know why we need to be in such a huge hurry to um, to go maybe take some kids we're not exactly sure about. Let's get through spring evaluation period. Let's begin to kind of prioritize and set our packing order and then get these guys in the camp and say, okay, yeah, I really want this kid. Then let's go get them. And maybe this is a kid we like a lot, but we want to wait and see kind of what happens with some other guys or perhaps we want to see some senior film. And I think that's where the state of Mississippi is this year. I think there are a lot of guys out there that are in a really good spot, but they need to do more to kind of move up the pecking order. There are some explosive players in Mississippi, and here's how it works with a lot of recruiting services. You know, you evaluate the guys that get the big offers first. I've always looked at it a little bit different. You know, I always I talk to my coaching friends, and I say, who is the best kid you played against? I don't just want to know about your kid. I want to know who's the best guy you played against. Who's the guy that keeps you up at night? And I get a list. And I go watch film. And sometimes I agree. Sometimes these guys are great players. Sometimes they're just great high school players. Not everybody's a prospect. Every team has a leading rusher. Doesn't mean they're a prospect. And so you go through and you begin to look at this. I think this is one of those years where the camp evaluation is probably going to matter a little bit more. Just because there are a lot of guys out there kind of similarly situated. And I see a lot of guys out here, 6'4", 6'5", 185, 190 pounds or, or bigger, and you say, yep, that guy's going to be a dude. You just got to kind of figure out where he projects. There are a handful of kids right now in the state of Mississippi that Mississippi State is recruiting that I know would commit to Mississippi State. Like if Tony Hughes called them today and said, hey, listen, let's get this thing done today, they would do it. They would. And you say, well, Steve, what are they waiting on? They're waiting on Mississippi State. They're waiting on State to kind of make a move. Well, Steve, what are we waiting for? Well, we're going to be sure. We want to be sure. So you get these guys in camp, you work them out, you have a chance to see what they can do and how they fit, and then you begin to move forward with a relationship. And then hopefully in the end, you don't have somebody coming up here with some NIL money uh, and buy a kid out from under you. And you say, well, Steve, we got to fight fire with fire. Well, we got a collective now too. You know, the difference is, you know, now the way the Mississippi law has changed, uh, we used to be at a, a, a severe disadvantage. Now it's like basically by the time a guy commits – you can get involved with him. How cool is that? I don't know if I like that. I used to like the whole thing about a signee, but now you know the Mississippi State law has swung in a different direction where you know it gives us a chance and some advantages that perhaps the other states don't have. And again, I think we should all have a level playing field. But if the state of Mississippi is going to allow us to uh, to offer name, image, and likeness compensation to a guy once he commits, we'd be a fool not to utilize it. I mean, Vanderbilt's not apologizing for using need-based aid in baseball, so. Listen, I'm going to get out of here today. I want to thank you guys, as always, for your support. Uh, you can go to uh, dogpilethebook.com, and uh, Father's Day is coming up. You need to get some books. Uh, I know baseball season didn't go well, so let's look back at 2021 in fond remembrance, and uh, you can enjoy that. I've had some people told me they have drowned their sorrows in rereading Dogpile. It's made them feel better, and we're going to have those moments again, too. So go to Dogpile the Book, and you can get signed to personalized copies of Flim Flam, Alpha Dog, Stark Villains, and Dogpile. You can find Bloomsville, Leander, of course, at Amazon.com, Booksamillion.com, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, and great bookstores everywhere. And if you're looking for Stark Villains gear, and you should be, go to StarkVillains.com. A little bit shorter show today. I got some things I got to do, and then we will uh, kind of recap what is going on in the SEC come Friday. And then by that time, too, we're going to be getting ready for a uh, softball game. How about that? That'd be exciting. We might actually do the show after the softball game is complete probably what we'll do but until then let's all live our lives in a way we make more friends than enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live